There are handouts in the back. If you didn't grab one, I suggest you get one. Be helpful as we make our way through Hosea in our study of the Minor Prophets. Pastor Aaron's teaching last week on Habakkuk was an encouragement. And next week, Aaron Smith, one of our TES students, will be teaching for us the message of Micah. So looking forward to that. Excited to have one of our students. Aaron will be a third-year student at TES, the Expositor Seminary here at MRBC, and he'll be teaching us from the message of Micah next week. So looking forward to that. I hope you're trying at least to read through the Minor Prophets in preparation for our time together. I won't ask for a show of hands, but just as a reminder, uh, if you can, read through the minor prophet that we're planning to, to cover. So I hope at least some of you tried to plow through Hosea. It's maybe not as easy as Joel or uh, Obadiah or Nahum, but it's not super long, right? And so hopefully you're able to make your way through that just to have it in your mind a little bit more than if you come in cold uh, with no real knowledge of, of what we're going to be covering because we're doing these in one, one chunk, right? One quick chunk. With that, just a little brief thought exercise or thought experiment for you. If you were asked to describe God's love to a friend, to a family member, you were just given the platform, what would you say? What would you find yourself going to to explain or describe God's love, God's mercy, God's compassion. We have good lyrical options, right? We sing, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. That, of course, there's even more verses than that that are helpful, soul-stirring. We sing of the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. And there are other songs. How many of us would be comfortable portraying God as a spurned lover, a despised husband whose bride has repeatedly committed adultery and constantly strays in spite of his tender care? And yet, he, despite all of that, pursues her, restores her, and is faithful to all of the promises that he made to her in spite of all of her waywardness. That's probably not the first place most of us would go in such a conversation. But that's exactly what the message of Hosea sets forth for us to understand the depths of God's love, his grace, his mercy. It is a, a vivid picture, gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching in its content as you read of the prophet being spurned. And that, an illustration of basically rebuffed love to an infinitely greater degree in Israel having pushed back and rejected the Lord. And all of this message is there to communicate that God does not quit in his love for his people. Even against a backdrop of the worst of sin, that is spiritual infidelity, adultery, spiritually speaking, against Almighty God. That's the uniqueness of Hosea. Not that it speaks of grace. 
For God's word speaks of grace from cover to cover, not that it speaks of compassion or mercy, but the way in which it portrays God's love for wayward sinners. It is unique in that and is profound in that, and it's a treasure in our scriptures. I confess, I, Hosea was one of those books where the pages were closer, you know, stick together, and you read and read quickly, and there's a lot of darkness in Hosea. And until a beloved professor said that it was his favorite work and walked us through there slowly, I hadn't really seen the, the richness of this picture. I hadn't rightly grasped or even began to grasp the message of Hosea. And it is such a sweet message in the midst of what largely is a very dark and trying book to read. But the core message is sweet because it speaks of God's unfathomable love. Just a brief, I don't have the opportunity to, to plug books by the professors too often. Dr. George Zimick and then his longtime friend and also a professor at, at TES, Doc, uh, Todd Murray, who's been here to do a, a musical concert related to the life and ministry of John Newton, if you remember that, if you were here. They've written, co-written, a commentary on Hosea. And go and buy it. If you want to study Hosea, go and buy this commentary. And let me, let me sell you on that. It is unique because Dr. Zemek writes the expositional sections of the commentary, and then Todd writes the exhortation sections. And so they've outlined the book, and as you go through each chapter of their commentary, which is, of course, a section of Hosea, Dr. Zemek lays out in fairly brief way, it's not, it's not overly demanding, the exegetical or the expositional explanation of the texts. And then Todd comes in and with pastoral precision, precision and in a Puritan-esque fashion applies the, the exegesis or the exposition in an exhortative way so that we, as we're reading through Hosea, we find quick application implication in our lives. It is a wonderful, wonderful study resource. And so again, let me commend that to you. If you want to study Hosea, if you want to read something as a companion to Hosea, it is called uh, Love Beyond Degree. And it is by George Zemick and Todd Murray. I believe Craig will publish that. But it is a commentary on, a unique commentary at that on the book of Hosea. A wonderful resource. Well, let me start, let's start. Turn to Hosea 11. Turn to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11 really serves as, as sort of a, a paradigm. It's paradigmatic for the message of the whole book. So I want to read Hosea 11 and just kind of give some explanation as we go to highlight a few things that, that you see throughout the book, but that come to a, a culmination in Hosea chapter 11. God says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet... It is I who taught Ephraim to, to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. 
They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refused to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. What you get in a, in a short, condensed section you get throughout the book, which is God referring to his care and his love and his ministry of salvation to this people that he had chosen and set his love on and their constant turning from him. And, and that may not seem unique, but the language is extremely unique because God uses language of what we said, a spurned lover, a, 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 a father who is being rejected, a husband who has a wayward spouse. And so God says, like, I, I've cared for them. I loved this people. And that love moved me to care for them in a particular way. I healed them. I took them in my arms, he says. I led them, right, with, with this tender care, with bonds of love. I bent down and fed them. I stooped and fed this, this animal, as it were, with, with the, out of the palm of my hand with tenderness. And yet they turned against that. We're supposed to, to sense the, the wrongness of this people who had received such unbelievably care from Almighty God himself and to feel the loss as in a broken relationship. And then after going through this in 11, when some of us might be tempted to say, I can't believe that, that they would do that, right? Who could be so hard-hearted? And we know the history of Israel, and we see that God led them out by all these miracles, and they're grumbling in the wilderness, and we're just, right, you've read through, and we're just, what is wrong with these people, right? There's a pillar of fire right in front of them, and smoke, and they're being fed from heaven, and they're still rebellious? This is crazy. I would never do that, Right? And then in the midst of that, we feel that indignation. And God, shockingly, right when we think, give it to them. They've rejected you long enough. They deserve your wrath. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? And he shares about his heart turning over, being kindled with affection for this wayward people. And then astonishingly says that he's going to restore them, that he's not going to destroy them even though that's what they deserve. And that's the paradigm for Hosea's message. You've heard it said Hosea is the, the prophet of the broken heart. And yes, it's his, as we'll see in the first three chapters, but it's God's broken heart that is referred to throughout. And that language is a little bit foreign to us. How often do we speak about God having a broken heart over wayward people for spurning his love and affection? 
And yet that's exactly what Hosea does to help us understand the depths of God's love and mercy in a fresh way and in a way that is uncommon to us. It is truly unique in, in its message in showing us the heart of God. And there's a relational emphasis that we absolutely do not want to miss. The relational emphasis of God's love for his people. It's not distant sort of arbitrary declarations of salvation, forgiveness, compassion. These are God's people that he personally loves, that he personally set his affection on, and they, they rejected him, knowledge of him their relationship with their Savior. There's relational dynamics at play, and the way that God refers to their rebellion is extremely relational, right? Adultery does not have a, an understanding. We can't even understand it without the context of relationship, right? There's unfaithfulness to a commitment, which is, involves personal relationship, and that's the, that's the picture, that's the pattern that the Lord uses to describe his relationship with his people, I say, just to make sure that it's clear too, relationship with his people, this message, all of the, uh, Victor and I were talking right before the service, there's a lot of, of bad stuff in Hosea, a lot of dark stuff. And it's easy for us to read that and think like paganism, but that's not it at all. This is a message to God's people. And so the warnings here are for God's people, not for them out there. It's for us, right? It was for the, the people of Israel who knew God, who had experienced his care, who had experienced his leading, who had experienced his miraculous deliverance as we just read. And similarly, as we seek to apply, we first, we shouldn't hear these warnings against sin and idolatry and those things without taking it to heart. God is dealing in Hosea with his people and their waywardness and the promises to return them to himself and to fulfill his promises to them. Turn over to Hosea 14, 9 from 11 over to 14.9. I'm going to start with the end, which is this. 14.9 says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. This comes, at least in the context of 14, of these promises of future restoration if we see this as a conclusion to the whole book, what we're called to understand is this message of the depths of God's love and his commitment to be faithful to both judge sin but ultimately restore the people that he has set his affection on because of his compassion and mercy. And we're warned at the end to consider these things, to make sure that we don't turn from them, that we understand if we want to walk in wisdom. You could come to Hosea with kind of two main questions that get answered. One is, how bad is sin? And the second one is, how great is God's love? And the answers that this message unfolds for us are, sin is far more wicked than we think. And God's love is deeper than we can imagine. That's, that's the answer. Those are the answers from Hosea. Sin is far more wicked than we think. And God's love is far deeper. It's far greater. It's far more profound than we can ever imagine. Brief historical background, Hosea had a, had a long ministry, maybe 750s BC to just before the Assyrian captivity, when Assyria came to take the 10 northern tribes of Israel in, 720, in the early 720s. The focus of Hosea's ministry was mainly the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom. 
what, what often in the prophecy is he refers to Israel or Ephraim sort of interchangeably, and that often is used to denote just the, the ten tribes. But there are, there's also attention given to Judah, or the southern kingdom. So Judah is mentioned, but his main ministry was, was Israel, the northern kingdom. The situation during Hosea's ministry, as we said uh, a few weeks ago, and as is the case for a lot of the minor prophets, it seemed to be a time of prosperity for the Lord's people, relative prosperity, but they're, they're portrayed as wandering about and going after pursuits other than, than the God who had planted them in their land. They began to trust other kings. They began to trust their own ingenuity, their own ways that they could deal with the problems that were intended to turn them back to the Lord. Hosea 10.13 gives a bit of a summary. It says, You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. That's a bit of a summary of, if you read all of Hosea, the, just the, the typical sin, the typical way that they're described as turning away from God, trusting themselves, trusting others, but not but not him. And all of this fits the background of really Deuteronomy 31. They're, they're living out what the Lord told Moses, sadly and tragically, would happen after he died. He says in Deuteronomy 31.16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise, and listen carefully, and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. So you hear the relational language, you hear the, the character of what they're doing, forsaking the Lord, playing the harlot. And that's the situation when you open up to Hosea. The rough outline of the book of Hosea, the first three chapters are basically the story of Hosea's life, which is illustrative of God in Israel. Chapters 4 then through 14 are kind of the core message, his messages or his prophetic messages to the people through the prophet. And there, it's not, there's not a super clean outline, but that's generally a, a rough breakdown of how the book and the message comes to us. So Hosea's illustrative life, the uniqueness of Hosea is that, and it's, it's gut-wrenching, Hosea is commanded to do something that is shocking. That is to take to yourself, Hosea 1-2, a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. That's, that's his marching orders from Almighty God. This immediately causes us conflict. Well, it couldn't mean this. Was God really asking his prophet to go do this? And the answer is yes. I don't think this is a vision. I don't think that he's just portraying what she would become, though some make that argument. I think the normal sense of the language here would have us believe that Hosea is commanded to go and marry a, a harlot. Now, before we start getting tied up in knots trying to figure out how can God ask to do that, he tells us why in that verse. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. 
So Hosea's life as a prophet is going to be an illustration of God's relationship with the people of Israel. Verse 3, Hosea, so he went, he obeys, and he takes Gomer, the daughter of Dibleim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And you have these children that are named, and they become an illustration, similar to other prophets. Isaiah's children had significant names. Others have significant names. Here, these are names, and they're significant of the people's rebellion against the Lord. So God asked Hosea to do this. His life, the reality of this, is going to be an illustration for the people throughout his ministry. Similarly, just to make it plain, look over at chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, go again, chapter 3, verse 1, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. And then even after she is purchased back and restored and Hosea tells her you shall stay with me for many days and you shall not play the harlot verse 3 of chapter 3 nor shall you have a man so I will also be toward you and then there's illustration and the Lord says for the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince without sacrifice or sacred pillar and without ephod or household idols so Hosea's life is an illustration and it is it should be gut-wrenching like we should read that and just feel sick and that's the point God tells Hosea to love this unfaithful woman, and he does, and she's unfaithful. And then God tells him to go and love her again. Continue to love her. Go and buy her back. Take her. Restore her. And so he does. And both of those acts are illustrations. It's easy for us to read those things. It occupies, what, five verses? This is the prophet's life. There were children. All of them a pattern and an illustration for the Lord to communicate to his people both the wickedness and heinousness of their sin but more than that the profundity of his love and his grace toward this wayward people what are the roles well I think we all know this but Gomer and Hosea right are the Lord in Israel and we need to be careful when we're reading this that we're not too quick to jump in and put ourselves in the position of Hosea as if this is, is primarily a lesson about us loving difficult people. There's application there. Please, please hear me. You can take application for the character of love, and there is, because we look first to God. That's what James taught us last week in First John. We look first to God to know what love looks like. And Hosea lays out what God's love looks like, and we should learn from that. Right? But the primary role of Hosea and Gomer is God and his people, wayward people. God is in the role of Hosea, the husband, and the people are in the role of Gomer, the unfaithful wife. And we're more Gomer than we are Hosea, and that's important. We read this and find application in the warnings against spiritual harlotry. More there first than jumping to, this is how I should show love to this person who's being unfaithful to me or, or is being hard to love because God is giving and gracious in his love. Yes, but first, it's more about us and God, God and his people, than it is about us and others. You and I bear in our sinful hearts the adulterous tendencies of Gomer. And that, this message and the application from that, then we apply there first, and that's, that's important. All right, so the pattern of Hosea's message. I can, I can kind of see how this is going to go for the next 20 minutes. 
So I've given you the significant themes and a lot of proof texts, okay? What I want to do first, if I have to choose what I, what I, what I want to draw your attention to is, is the pattern of Hosea's message. And we're going to look at several passages, and it, it's simply this. It's, it's juxtapositions constantly throughout. What should be shocking juxtapositions. The darkness of sin, namely used in terms of adultery, infidelity, harlotry, and then, and then these, these unbelievable assurances of God's grace and his love and his compassion. And they're, they're juxtaposed right next to each other. And that's the pattern. You have chapter 1, and you give these, this explanation to, to Hosea of what he's supposed to go and do. And the Lord explaining that his people have turned from him, and then he's going to deal with them harshly in a way that, that is right based on their sin. He says through these names, right, no mercy. And then verse 9, the Lord said, Name him lo me, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. You go back to Leviticus and when the law is given and that covenant is made, and that's, that's the terminology, I will be your God, you are my people. I am Yahweh, right? I am the Lord, I am your Lord. And here he says, no. And it's like, I mean, that's as, as plain and thunderous as it could be. That is, for God to say to his people, I'm not your God, is, is ultimate. And yet, he says, yet, verse 10, yet. And it, it just, it's striking. And then he goes on to promise that he will be faithful to the same promises that he made Abraham. The number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Which should sound a lot like God taking Abraham out and saying, look around. Look up, look at the stars, look, look at, right, without number. So just from I am not your God to yet, this is going to happen. Down through 2.1 where he says, say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, which is my people, or mercy, or compassion. So there's a quick change, a juxtaposition, and you see that throughout. Are, did I give you these in your handout? Okay, then we're not going to go through all of them. We read the one in Hosea chapter 11, right, where you have the recounting of Israel's historical unfaithfulness, and then immediately after that, God's saying, how can I give them up? And then they're going to be restored. So from verse 7 to verse 8, this juxtaposition, sin and judgment, immediately juxtaposed with God's grace, his love, his promise to restore. Chapter 14, you have him calling them to repent. And then verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, God says. So again, the point of this is just to understand the pattern. As you read through Hosea, don't, if you read too quickly, you'll miss the, the, the juxtapositions where out of nowhere after an indictment that is ultimate, God says, yet I'm not going to give you up, or yet my love burns for you, or yet I will love you freely, or yet I will turn you to myself. I will restore you. I will set you in the land. And, and it can be shocking, and it's supposed to be. It's kind of the point. So astounding juxtapositions throughout. Now, what are some significant themes? Some significant themes. And the first one I have for you is unconscionable sin. What I want to highlight here is not just sin in general, but unconscionable sin and the character of sin as infidelity. 
the character of sin as infidelity, as adultery, as characterized as as harlotry. And there are different ways throughout that the Lord communicates the waywardness of his people that emphasizes the relational dynamic of God's covenant relationship with those whom he's chosen to love. He says that they forgot God, that they don't know or that they don't remember. He calls them harlots and adulterers. He says they've turned away all of those kind of language. They don't know me, he says. And these are relational terms. It's not just sin in general. You don't read Hosea and find out, well, the people are just doing a bunch of bad stuff. There's injustice. They're treating each other poorly. They're, they're worshiping false God. All of those things are, are, are characterized by this emphasis on broken relationship, infidelity, waywardness. And that should, should add some sting to what we read it's been said many times that, that Hosea portrays that it's not just the sin is not just the breaking of God's law, but it's the breaking of God's heart. And that is a, that's a nuance that, that we need to hear from Hosea. It's not just stepping across the line. It's not just a recounting of all of these transgressions in accordance with the law. It's a breaking of a close relationship. And not just with anybody, but with perfect, holy, almighty God. And so as you read through those various passages, look for the different ways that sin is characterized as unfaithfulness to a husband, as unfaithfulness to a father, as spurned love and affection. And that helps us see that the wickedness of sin amongst God's people so it makes it unconscionable. That's, that's the point of that. It's, it's not just that sin in general is bad, and it is. It's that sin in God's people is evidence of a heart that is turning from one who loves and who has secured that person in a relationship by his own sovereign grace. So it, we can say it this way, it emphasizes the sinfulness of sin or it, it emphasizes or heightens our awareness of the wickedness of sin by understanding it relationally and seeing this, this picture that Hosea lived and that we read about of an unfaithful spouse spurning love. And yet, the second theme that comes through in juxtaposition of that is unbelievable mercy and unending love. similar to understanding the, the heinousness of, of their sin, we understand the depths of God's love when we understand this, this relational picture when it's referred to as that. Again, it's, it's not just this distant declaration. God is love, God loves, and we, we understand it with the teeth of understanding the, the relationship and the poignancy that comes from hearing God refer to himself as a tender, caring husband who when his people sin in turn is a rejection of that tender care and his own heart responds both by recoiling against what must be done to punish sin but also by still seeking and and being faithful to his promises of restoration because of grace. That's what we see in Hosea 11 that we read earlier. God figuratively pulls back the curtain and lets us see. I know saying that God has emotions can 
result in a theological conundrum with regard to impassibility or other things. But that's what the text says. My heart is turned over. It recoils. And it's supposed to make us think, there's this wrestling in the Lord where he's saying, I'm not going to respond with all the way, the ultimate devastation that your wayward sin deserves. Look at 2.16. I'm clearly cherry-picking here because there are way more verses than, than we'll have than we have that we could possibly go through together. And I hope that you look at them with some of these comments in mind. In the midst of a text where, where the Lord, Hosea, and, and that picture is the picture of Hosea's love for Gomer and his restoring love, and then the Lord is speaking, saying what he's going to do for his people Israel. He says, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali, which is... Just the Lord saying, on that day, you're going to call me husband. I mean, we need a a little dose of some tender care language from the Lord in our theology, and Hosea gives it to us. You see the sweetness there? The Lord referring to a day when his people will be restored by his grace and mercy, and it's not some arbitrary declaration by a distant deity. God says, you're going to call me husband. We will be restored. You will no longer call me master in the way that you are with these other false gods. So the whole point of Hosea demonstrates this unbelievable mercy and unending love. God does not turn. He cannot turn from his promise, his commitment to love his people, no matter how sinful they are. That's why we said at the beginning, the message of Hosea, one aspect of this, yes, sin is, is more wicked than we think, because of the infidelity inherent in God's people sinning against the Lord. And his love is greater than we can possibly imagine. Because the sin gets as black as it can be and the Lord's love is still there. That's that's what these sections of his promises communicate. You know, we read it already, 14.4. He said, in that day, I will love them freely. The Lord will continually pour out his love on this people even though everything that they've done deserves an opposite reaction and a response. Now, I just want to pause. When, when we read through Hosea, we see judgment. Remember, unending love and mercy does not mean no judgment. It doesn't mean no discipline. But the whole context of the relational dynamic at play in Hosea shows that the judgment and the indictments of sin and the Lord bringing chastisement on his people is actually an act of his love to turn them back to him which fits with what we understand of his fatherly care for us as his children. He disciplines them, those whom he loves, right? Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us in one place, many others in scripture. So unbelievable mercy, unending love doesn't mean that God's people are never deal with the consequences of their sin, never deal with wrath. But it's unending in that He says, I will not wipe you out and annihilate you even though that's what you deserve. That's the grace and the mercy. That's where we similarly write Romans 5. When does God justify sinners? When did Christ die? When we're sinners, when we're enemies, when we're ungodly, right? When we're rejecting. Unbreakable promises is another theme and that's related, of course, to unbelievable mercy and unending love, but it... It's got a slightly different nuance, and that's just God's faithfulness in spite of sin. So his love 
for this wayward people also issues forth in faithfulness continually to the promises that he made long ago. We just read earlier where the language is reminiscent of the language he uses when he promises Abraham what his covenant with Abraham will bring about. And he uses that same language to say, even though all of this has happened, and even though you've done all of these things, and you're going to be dealt with and disciplined, I will not forsake my promises that I had already made to you as my people. Several wonderful passages that, that draw that out in a beautiful way. Hosea two twenty one. it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And the New Testament helps us see that we as Gentiles who are not God's people are a part of this promise to God's people Israel that he will be faithful to. Hosea 3.5 says that the sons of Israel will return and they will seek the Lord their God and David their king. And this was long after David was in the grave. It's a promise of the greater David, Jesus Christ. And this people will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. There will be a restoration. That promise is sure. It's unbreakable. Their sin could not break God's love, in that sense, the bonds of love, and therefore could not break God's faithfulness to his promises. That's, that's kind of the idea. Again, I've given you those. I want you to work through those as you have time just to see some of the themes drawn out in the proof text I've given you. What are some takeaways for us? How can we read Hosea, survey the landscape of this wonderful message that highlights the the heights of God's love and the depths of man's sin? How can we take something away from this? Well, there's a few, there's more, but... Just a few suggestions. The first one we've, I've hit many times throughout this, and that is consider the relational dynamics of sin and salvation. Consider the relational dynamics of sin and salvation. You've been saved by a personal God who sent his son to die, not for sin in general, but for the sin of those who believe that he has relationship with. And sin against God is a personal offense. We're transgressing our Savior. Our sin is infidelity. And that's picked up in the New Testament. James, in James 4.4, uses the terminology of adultery to refer to those who, who, are, who are rebelling or in rebellion. Paul uses language, remember when he warns the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says, I'm worried that you're turning from what? From the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's after he says, I want to present you to, to Christ as a pure virgin. Betrothed, I betrothed you to him. You hear this relational language and he's warning against sin by saying, don't spurn that relationship. Sin is infidelity. Hosea helps us see that. And again, we read Hosea, and I'm reminded, I'm reminded personally reading Hosea. You think of, remember David when Nathan came, and he's indignant. 
And you read this, and it's easy to read this and be indignant. The people are, are, God is pouring forth his heart in this book. And it's easy to be indignant. And Nathan, right, says figuratively to all of us, thou art the man, right? We are the men and women who are tempted to be wayward in our hearts, which is infidelity. Which is a second then, brings us to our second takeaway. Be aware of your propensity for a wayward heart. Remember, this message from Hosea is for God's people. It's people that Hosea 11 said knew the, the tender care of Almighty God, the deliverance that brought them out of Egypt, right? They knew that in their ancestry. They knew that that was God's preeminent display of of his salvation for his people and his grace and compassion. And he says they knew all that and yet what'd they do? They turned from it. They rebuffed it. They forgot. Listen to Hosea 13, 6. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. That's a warning to us to guard against the waywardness of our hearts. Our hearts wander and we by and large, are fairly well satisfied in our current historical context. And it's easy to be self-sufficient and to wander after other things that we seek for security, for satisfaction, etc. The people of Israel were drawn to idolatry amidst their circumstances. And we have a propensity to love the world, the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And Hosea warns us against that by seeing the example of this people and seeing God's calls to not turn. Their example warns us to guard our hearts against the same and to ask the Lord for grace to press on in faithfulness, clinging to him and not being led astray. Another takeaway as you read through Hosea is to recognize the importance of repentance. To recognize the importance of repentance the Lord repeatedly is saying, turn, they've turned away, they need to turn back. And, and in Hosea 14, he, he prescribes repentance. And we see this wonderful picture, this portrayal of what it looks like. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, and so here's, here's an example repentance for us from the mouth of God. Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. He's saying, we're not going to trust them. We will not ride on horses. That is, we're not going to trust our, our might, what we have in horses or soldiering. Nor will we say to again, our God to the work of our hands. So they're forsaking idolatry. For in you, the orphan finds mercy. And the Lord responds to that repentance beginning in verse 4 and says, I'm going to heal their apostasy. I'm going to love them freely. I will be, verse 5, like the dew to Israel. He will be nourishment to the repentant heart. And we're reminded as we read through the importance to turn. The calls, the calling of sin, what it is, and its wicked infidelity, and the highlight of God's love should woo God's people back time and time again to repentance. God is more merciful and gracious toward his people than we can fathom, as we've said, and that should move us toward repentance. And lastly, be awestruck at the inestimable, inestimable 
holy love of God? How can we fathom? How can we quantify? How can we rightly esteem or estimate God's love? And in 11.9, we'll close with this. My favorite verse in the whole message, the whole book. The end of verse 9. After he says, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst. And what I want you to see there is God is using his love and the depths of that love to say, my transcendent otherness, my holiness, my utter distinction from man extends to the way that I show love. If God were a man, Ephraim would be given up. They would be destroyed. The point is, but God's holy love is distinguished. It's totally other. Imagine Isaiah 6, right? And the worship and the holy, holy, holy God and the, 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 the splendor that's, and the majesty that's being communicated by the shaking and the robe and the smoke. Here God uses his love and says the response to a right estimation of his love should be the same. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God because of how he loves. And that's, a, that's an astonishing message in Hosea. We should be awestruck and tremble, right, with fear and reverence at God's love. That's one of the messages. Let's pray.